Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, let me just say good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, it's going just, uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful morning out there. I, I don't know if you've been out yet, but uh, it's just, it's just, it's spring. And that, for me, that's a very happy season of the year. Oh, definitely. What's a really big difference between using the compost tea and then spreading the compost? Uh, that's an excellent question. One better benefits? Um, one one yeah. the same, basically? Well, here's the deal. It depends on what you're looking to get out of your compost. The most important component of compost is the microbial life that's in there, all the beneficial bacteria and fungi and all the things that you have in, con- in con- your compost, that, to me, is one of the most important things. Now, a couple of other things that your compost brings to the table, lots of humic acids, lots of fulvic acids, lots of things that benefit your soil and soften your soil, and then there is the matter of just plain, raw, bulk, organic material that you get when you put down compost. And so compost does a lot of things. It works to soften the soil, it works to... Uh, greatly increase the microbial life, and um, and and like I say, it uh, it has a lot of other things in it. When you make compost tea, what you're doing is taking that microbial life that is in the compost and multiplying it by a hundred times or a thousand times. You're taking those bacteria and fungi, especially the bacteria, putting them into an absolutely perfect environment for them to reproduce. So when what it boils down to is when you use compost tea, you're actually getting not only the microbial life that you would have in the compost, but you're getting it expanded perhaps a thousandfold. But when you use compost tea, you're giving up the humic acids, the fulvic acids, you're giving up the, you know, just the bulk organic material of compost. So where you're looking to improve the life in your soil, compost tea is probably better than compost. Where you're looking to soften your ground and bring more organic material more quickly to the table then uh you know using compost is probably better so um i have to tell you that compost tea you know is for all intents and purposes far less expensive for the amount of life you get out of it and uh you know a little bit goes a long 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 way but it doesn't bring you all the benefits that compost does so i you know i think you just kind of have to look at clint's garden and say Okay, what am I more in need of? Do I need to soften this soil? Do I need to immediately bump up the organic content? Or am I more interested in bumping up the beneficial bacteria and fungi in the soil? And then you make the decision. I mean, one $10 bag of compost has enough compost in there to make 100 batches of compost tea. So, yeah, if you're just looking for the microbial life, it's a little more work, but it's a lot less money than buying raw compost. But if you're looking to knock down the weeds, if you're looking to soften soil, things like that, compost tea is not going to do that nearly as quickly as putting down, you know, just your, your your straight good raw compost. So kind of a long answer to a short question, but an excellent question. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. And my problem is I got 
just way too much yard to even think about spreading compost. Sure. So now the acid you had talked about, do you get any of that when you're using the Medina Plus and the uh, Growing Green? Um, two different products, of course, hauled together. Medina Plus's job right. is basically to uh, increase the microbial life, and Medina Plus also has some humic acid in it that is going to do some various good things for the soil. Uh, Growing Green has nutrient, which comes from the pasteurized poultry litter, and then it's got you know extra things like lots of humate, lots of green sand. Uh, I'll be careful how I say this. If they happen to put some mycorrhizal fungi in there, I'm not really supposed to tell you that, but if they happen to do that, that might be one other benefit that you get out of the fertilizer. So, you know, they... Uh, um, I, there, the growing green brings a whole lot more to the table. Medina Plus, if you already have the microbial life, it just kicks it into a higher gear. Uh, if you don't have the the uh, microbial life already there, then compost tea is probably a better product. But they, they kind of all three, that's why we have to, despite what Mr. Bloomberg may think, us farmers have to have a fair amount of gray matter. We have to be able to uh, sort out what our soils are most in need of and then do our best to meet those needs. And they're just three totally different products. Compost tea, quick, easy, and what it brings you is, you know, a big bang for the buck. Fertilizer, your plants really need it. I consider that to be mandatory, whereas I don't think compost tea is mandatory. Compost, actual compost application in a limited area, it's one of the best things you can possibly do. But you have to be realistic. And if you've got thousands of square feet of ground to cover, it's a lot of time and a lot of money. So you simply make the most of what you have, I guess, would be the best way to sum it up. Now, um, the stuff that y'all sell of the nursery, what's the application rate? Of the compost tea? Yes, sir. Uh, compost tea, a gallon of compost tea will do uh, about 5,000 square feet. 5,000 square yeah. feet. So, what, you know, a gallon of compost tea. I'm sorry? What, what, setting do you, what setting do you want on the hose-in sprayer? Like in the, I'd be, I'd be like putting it about a tablespoon per gallon. A tablespoon per gallon? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, what is the shelf life, uh, I guess, from uh, your spear uh, once you take it off your bubbler there to get it home? A couple hours. A couple hours? Yeah. Now, if you have... hour drive. (laughs) Yeah. If you have have somebody with you and they can sit there and shake it, or if you can safely, as you're driving down the road every now and then, if your bottle has a handle on it, Reach over and give it a good shake. You're you're airifying it that way. If you happen to be and and my grandfather and I never had one. We we fished with minnows, but I know you can buy one of these aerators that you plug into the old cigarette lighter that you know would keep your bait alive in the tank. If you did that, you know you got a two day shelf life. If you if you have a way, the the thing that limits the shelf life of compost tea is the microbes use up the oxygen in the mix, and then it starts going downhill. Anything you do to increase the oxygen in there, whether it's actively agitating it, better yet putting a bubbler or something like that in there, then you can really stretch out the uh, you know, the life of it. And it's not all that difficult to make it at home if you... Uh, you know, if you want to do that, you go down to the aquarium shop, get one of these uh, bubblers that you put in your fish tank, and 
You get a little molasses, a little liquid fish, a little bit of compost. Compost tea is very, very easy to make at home. And always remember the year that my business partner and I paid a lot of money to go up to Austin and uh, hear Dr. Elaine Ingham give a three-day course on compost tea. And among the things she did, she had kind of a compost or had a kind of a contest. She invited, there were some big commercial people there, and she invited them to bring their tea makers. And then as part of our learning deal, we analyzed compost tea to see who had the best compost tea. Number one in the batch was uh, Malcolm Beck's $10,000 worm gold compost tea maker. Number two was Bruce Dooley's $25 homemade tea bucket. So um, it, it's not rocket science. And if you're doing a lot of it, Clint, I'd tell you to make your own. I'd love to have you come buy what we make. And, you know, I'd, I'd get a whole 5 or $6 out of the deal. But um, And for a lot of people, you know, that's money well spent. But a person like yourself that's a very active gardener probably will have an ongoing need for it. Um, next time you're around our area, I you can probably still go online to natureapproved.com. Uh, Bruce always promises to stay in better communication and rarely does, but I think he's got still got his website up, or we've got a free handout we'll give you on making compost tea. And uh, you're the kind of guy that uh, you have a little bit of time and a lot of knowledge. You could you could make your own as easily as you go buy it. Thank you. Now, does the Dirk Doctor have a recipe online or tell you how to do it? I don't know. I would have to sit down at Dirt Doctor. There's so much information on that website that uh, I don't know whether he has it on there or not. I'm sure it's not as complete as Bruce Dooley would, so where I'd start out is at natureapproved.com and see what you find there. Good deal. And a totally unrelated subject, what's the latest you heard on uh, Texas uh, allowing the hemp? Uh, What about the hemp? Hemp, well, when are they going to start allowing people to, uh, the farmers to grow that? Well, they're allowing it now. It takes a license, and you have to be very, very sure that your hemp does not exceed the legal amount of THC in there, and uh, they come down on you pretty hard if you're growing a, a strain of hemp that produces a lot of THC. But uh, uh, there are a lot of people out there, you know, starting to grow hemp, and as long as you don't have the, uh, you know, the active cannabinoids in there, then uh, you're you're perfectly legal to do it. But it does take some paperwork. So they already started the licensing on it? I believe they certainly have. I know Howard Garrett's been given a lot of seminars. I know, uh, um, I, to the best of my knowledge, there are two or three pretty big operations uh, going right now. I guess my county extension agent's way behind the line then. <laughs> well, let me let me verify that. I'll put a note right here at my 8 o'clock hour to uh, ask Howard if everything is... You know, it's, uh, <laughs> let's see, uh, ask about hemp. Uh, he, he saves up on it much more because he, he works as a consultant. I'll get you a quick answer to that at 8 o'clock. I appreciate the time. Always a pleasure, Clint. Have a great day, and I'll move on and say good morning to Sid. What's going on today, Sid? Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Bob, I, I've been using the uh, Sluggo Plus, but the darn pill bugs are eating us alive. What can I do to get rid of them? You know, I'm sort of seeing the same thing in my garden. The Slogo Plus is killing thousands of them, but I think there are millions of them out there. What I'm going to do is, um, assuming I have a a spare hour this week, is uh, put in two or three pill bug traps, which is just a little slick-sided jar, you know, sunk down in the ground. 
uh, where they can crawl over the edge of it, you know, put a piece of lettuce down on the bottom, an apple, something like that. And pill bugs will crawl in there by the tens of thousands and just, you know, once a week or however often, uh, once a day, you pick it out and dump it in a bucket of salt water or something that'll kill them. And um, that, that to me, uh, is going to be the best supplement to the Sluggo Plus. They're just, I guess the weather's been right with all these little drizzly, piddly rains that we've been getting uh, it's, I've got more bill bugs than I've ever seen around the garden and I've really knocked their numbers down with Slogo plus, but, uh, I've still got a whole, a whole lot more than I want to have around. So my project this week is to put, make some uh, pill bug traps and get them out there. Okay. That sounds good. Now, my other concern was I bought this Slogo plus last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long is it good? It ought to be good for three or four years. It's okay. it's not like neem, which has a short shelf life. The active ingredients in Slogo Plus are the iron phosphate, which is what is the snail and slug killer, and then they add spinosad, which is the uh, pill bug killer. And as long as they're using, and I have no reason to think they're not using a good quality spinosad, it has a much longer shelf life. Well, that that sort of generates another question: Should I maybe use spinosad? It's see the problem with spinosad is you have to get it on the target organism. You have to get the spinosad on the pill bug, and for every pill bug you see out there crawling around, you know there are probably a thousand of them hiding underneath that pot, underneath that you know bag. Everything I pick up out there has a, a collection of pill bugs underneath it. So that's the beauty of the bait is you don't have to get it on them because it has an attractant that will bring them to it and get them in contact with it. So um, spraying straight sluggo, sure, that's going to be, uh, I'm straight uh, spinosad, that's going to be fine, everything you get it on, but yeah, those little devils are pretty good at hiding out. So you're going to have a trouble finding a way to really you know, spray them enough to uh, to make a big dent in the population. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Uh, we were we were trying to plant some uh, uh, transplants yesterday, and it seemed like they were under the ground even. If it's real loose, yeah, they may be slightly below the surface of the ground. I was planting some beans earlier this week and some squash, and I was amazed just, you know, using my little tool to open a row to put my beans in. It seemed like it was full of pill bugs before I ever even got the seeds down in there. That's exactly what happened to us. Yeah. Now, uh, another thing, uh, the uh, soil activator and the uh, Medina Plus. Uh Uh-huh. How often do you use both of those, and and what is the benefit of each one? Well, as uh, as Clint was asking a similar question, and the only difference in Soil Activator and Medina Plus, Medina Plus is just Soil Activator that has some extra seaweed added to it, um, which just makes it that much better a product. The principal thing that those products do is to activate the microbial life that's in the soil, and that in turn builds organic material, loosens the soil, doesn't happen overnight. I mean, uh, either one of those products, you're gonna, you're gonna use them for a year or two to really see a change in soil texture. But as far as picking up the activity of your beneficial microbes, that's gonna happen immediately. Um, as far as the product goes, you will never burn with it. You could never use too much of it. It would be hard on the bank account. But I think that 
you know, I think that, oh, maybe once a month, I think if you go more often than that, I just don't think the benefits outweigh the trouble of doing it. Um, uh, Stewart's commercial people, you know, these are the guys that buy it in 256-gallon carboys. Uh, they usually do it like twice a year or at most four times a year. So for those of us that are doing a smaller area, I think aiming it, uh, you know, once, um, you know, maybe once a month, I think is going to pretty much optimize your results. And that's with the Medina Plus, right? Or the Medina or the soil activator, either one. Oh, well, which is better to use? Well, you're, the, the Medina Plus is a little better product, and it costs about an extra dollar a bottle. But you could take, if you happen to have soil activator, you know, take your jug of liquid seaweed and, and slosh a little bit of it in there, and voila, you just made Medina Plus at home. Okay, because I have a gallon of each. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here's what I would do, um, considering that Medina Plus is marginally better than soil activator you know if i had a big bucket i'd dump them in there mix them together and then pour them back in the bottles and so i guess i've now got medina half plus but i've got two jugs of that so i've gained the benefits of adding the seaweed to it um and uh i I don't know that that's probably what i would do sid i i would tend to use them interchangeably but i'm i'm gardening slightly different because i've created a bunch of new brand new garden beds this season whereas my old garden beds you know they've been certainly in the time that i've been doing it they've had nothing but organic care for over 20 years now and that soil's good to the point that i don't find a lot of need to use either one of them but in my new raised beds that i've built a lot of up around my house i'm using it pretty regularly there and the results are outstanding okay very good well uh thank you very much bob and uh now you said to mix the uh uh soil activator with with the medina plus no it well if if i had a bottle of each i'd probably just mix them together and now i've just you know i've got two gallons of uh, of something that's you know the two mixed together if i just had the soil activator and i wanted to improve it i'd add uh to that gallon of soil activator i'd probably add um, you know half a cup of liquid seaweed and then basically i'd have now have a gallon of medina plus Okay. That's the only difference, as I understand it. I'll ask Stuart next time I see him. But the only difference, I think, is the liquid seaweed added to the soil activator turns it into Medina Plus. Uh, On the soil activator in the Medina Plus, I sort of got the impression that you should not apply it on the foliage of brassicas. Is that, or should you not apply it to any foliage or? all foliage you know that's that that's an excellent question and um my answer to that is that those things are designed to stimulate the soil microbes uh soil microbes not necessarily the things that are on the plants because obviously when the farmer's putting it out he's getting it on the foliage so it's certainly not going to hurt anything but neither is it really going to benefit anything so um, I guess the liquid seaweed, you know, would be some benefit as a foliar application, but I don't believe that there's any toxicity issue. I think it's just a matter that uh, that is it's really designed to help the soil, not designed to directly, you know, help through a foliar application. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just doesn't do anything for you. 
Well, the the reason I asked that question is because I had uh, like uh, five uh, cabbages all in a row, and I put out the soil activator, I believe it was, and three of them seemed to really uh, have a, a, a problem. They they never continued to develop, and they had all this brown uh, muck all over them. And I was thinking, well, is there a possibility that I did that whenever I applied the soil activator? I doubt it. Um, I haven't seen that on my cabbages, but my cabbage are a third the size they usually are with all the warm weather. The heads aren't nearly as tight as usual, so I think it's probably more due to something in the environment. But, uh, um, again, I talk to Stuart Frankie pretty often. I'll ask him that question. Okay, very good. Well, I totally appreciate you, Bob, and uh, listen to you every week. Well, I do. Thank you, Sid, and uh, you have a great weekend, and uh, get out and enjoy that garden. I know we'll talk again soon, and thanks so much. All right, Penny's up next. Good morning, Penny. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a, I have a bed that's about 12 feet by 15 feet, Okay, and it was something that we solarized uh, two years ago, and it only collects weeds along, along the outer perimeter, which are easy to, easy to pull up. But what I want to do is plant a, a bunch of zinnias. I've always found that mm-hmm. zinnias really grow well, but I hadn't tried them here. How do I go about, uh, do I scatter the seed or do I, uh, how do I make the soil receive the seed and, and, and let it germinate? How do I do that? Well, it's the zinnia seed is one seed that will grow better if it is covered. It would like to be, you know, put down a quarter of an inch or so into the ground. What I would do if I was looking to do the easiest thing, I would be sure your soil is fairly loose. I'd scatter the seed, but then I'd go over it with a hard rake, with a grass rake, and, and just mm-hmm. rake it real good to get the majority of the seed you know, under the surface of the soil if I wanted to have that whole area as a zinnia patch. Now, I will tell you that it's worth looking for an improved variety of zinnia, and that is probably, I think, still the best one and one that you can get a seed is called Dreamland. And the deal is your old-fashioned common zinnia, beautiful as they are, they don't last a long time, and back in the days when I grew that, I found you had to uh, replant three times a year if you wanted to have your zinnias all summer. You had to plant a fresh crop of them about every six weeks because the uh, plants just didn't last as long. The newer varieties, like Dreamland, and there are probably a couple of others out there, they continue to rebloom through the entire season uh, with just one planting of seed or plants, either one. Now, I bet that big, you're probably going to want to do seed rather than plants. But be sure you're not getting the old common garden zinnia, even if it costs, you know, a few extra pennies per package of seed. Get Dreamland, or um, and, and there's some little short ones, some of the Profusion series, the Zahara, Z-A-H-A-R, a is another one of the more compact ones but be sure you're getting a real good seed because zinnias are just oh they are great cut flower and they're one of the prettiest things you can plant in a sunny spot in the garden so definitely go for it but definitely you do you do need to bury the seed slightly which you can do by just raking that area good after you scatter your seed okay and then um what uh how much seed do i need for 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 that big an area how much how many packets of seeds should I get? 
for you said a ten by twelve area, one hundred and twenty square feet, or twelve by fifteen. Okay, so um, you're looking at one hundred eighty square feet. I'd probably do about uh, four or five packages of seed. Again, it depends okay. a little bit on the seed company because, quite frankly. Uh, some companies put a lot more seed, but when, if you can feel that package of seed, which I always do when I buy seed, kind of make a guess at how many seed are in there, uh, probably four or five packs are going to be adequate to do it. All right. And how often should I water them till they come up? Water very thoroughly whenever the soil surface is dry. That's probably going to be every couple of days. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call, Penny. Appreciate it. Bye. Goodbye. All right. Next up is Wayne. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Bob. Morning, I have a sir. question about some loquat trees. Okay. I went to Phoenix a couple weeks ago, and I bought 12 to 15 loquat trees, and <laughs> I planted them. And then those darn deer got there before I could put the wire cages around them. Okay. And they really stripped the leaves off. Some of them, they ate the tops right off the tree. And I put the cages around them. I didn't know if I need to do anything else with those loquats where they come back. I'd shoot the deer, but I wouldn't do anything for the loquats. No. <laughs> and any, anywhere, if they really, you know, a deer, a white-tailed deer can't make a clean bite on anything. They don't have incisors. The way they have to get a taste of something is to grab it and rip it off. And so right. this is why when they've come through and worked your loquats over, they may like a little rough. If you have limbs that are obviously broken or split, yeah, I'd get in there with my pruning shears immediately and cut those back. But I don't know. The deer might have done you a favor. You're going to have fuller, bushier plants where they nip the tops out of them. And uh, uh, loquats grow so quickly, and we're at the season of year that they put on their fastest growth. So I'm probably going to give them a little shot of has to grow plant. I'm going to fertilize them well. Loquats okay. are thirsty plants, so be sure you're watering. If we get what is forecast, which is this drizzly, piddly little bit of rain that makes the soil surface wet but doesn't do anything below that, that doesn't count as right. rain. Be sure you're watering them um, every few days. Uh, uh, the windier it is, the more faster they're going to dry out. The sunnier, sunnier it is, the faster they're going to dry out. So I can't really tell you water every day, water every other day. But be sure they don't get bone dry. Be sure when you water, you water very thoroughly. But, um, you know, for the deer to have eaten on the top of them, that's not going to have any negative long-term effect at all. Now, if these were mature plants that the blasted deer had rubbed the bark off of or something like that, that's a whole different story. But uh, they just did a little pruning for you, so uh, uh, I I don't think you have any Uh, cause for concern there, Wayne. Fantastic, Bob. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. See, this is what we do. The first half hour of the show, we uh, we take some time to you know delve a little bit more deeply into questions, and now we are running through the questions pretty quickly. So Don is up next. Good morning, Don. Good yeah, morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, sir. We're putting Epsom salt on tomatoes. How much do you put in at what does it benefit? Uh, somebody said it keeps the brown spot from coming on the you know, bottom of your tomatoes. That, that black spot on the bottom is called blossom end rot. And yeah. it is, it's not a disease. What it is, it's what happens when the tomato plant, to the tomato plant, when the balance of calcium and magnesium in the soil gets out of whack then it's a physiological response of the tomato plant. And the Epsom salts 
work in the soil to counteract this mineral imbalance in the soil. So uh, you're you're not wanting the tomatoes to take it up. What you're doing is just modifying the soil. So you don't put your Epsom salts in the hole. You just scatter them out over the surface of the ground. Uh, I was putting out you know Epsom salts this week myself on a new tomato area that I've developed. And I would say that I probably used about two handfuls, and my hands are medium-sized, but I probably used about two handfuls of Epsom salts around each tomato, and I spread it out probably an area, you know, two by two, just around the area that the tomato plant was planted. So you have to remember you're helping the soil. You're not helping the plant. So uh doesn't matter whether you, how close you get it to the tomato plant itself. Just scatter your Epsom salts just generally in that little area around each plant. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, also, on germinating the seed, uh, I've had trouble with what I've talked to you before about these uh, Israeli melons, and, I, and I, out of a hundred seeds, I've got four plants come up, and I was going to order some more. How can you put a, a, a paper towel on wet and keep it wet and wipe them so they germinate? Because I noticed on the video on the internet that that they they had the seeds already come you know germinating coming up sprouting out of it on the bottom before they put them in the ground. Well if they they make something we generally use a paper towel method just to see, you know, that the seed is still viable. But we're yeah, not because you think you buy on the darn internet, you never know because I I've I've hundred seeds, I only got full plants and I've yep. had a well, there can be, you know, and it, it could be a matter of not real good seed. It could be a matter of the blasted pill bugs that we were discussing earlier. Or, you know, some of them could have just gotten buried a little deeper than others and maybe a little slower to come up. Uh, but, yes, you can use paper towels to germinate. And one thing you can do if you want to make it a little easier, you know, assuming that you don't have 20 acres to do, but you can you can uh, get what is called seed tape, which is a biodegradable paper that already has the seed embedded in it. And so basically what you do is dig your furrow and just pull this little piece of tape down through there and cover it up. And uh, there are a number of companies, especially Johnny's and a couple of others, that also make pelletized seed, which is, uh, you know, where they've encased the individual seeds in a little bit of nutrient material and things. And it makes a little easier to put them out. There's so many things that seed are so small that it's hard to get them planted real evenly. So um, I'm answering more than your question. Your question was just about using the paper towels to check germination, and that you can most certainly do. But if you have a problem getting uneven germination, sometimes you can solve that either with a pelletized seed or with the seed tape. Yes. Yeah. Well, well uh, the, the, the melons and, and, and twice cross-pollinate? They will cross-pollinate, uh, but... It doesn't change, you know, if you, if you had a hybrid between a squash and a melon, it would not show up in the first generation. But if you save the seed and replanted it, you might get some real mixed up plants. That's like people saying, well, if you plant your, if your hot peppers cross pollinate your, your sweet peppers, it'll make them hot. No, that doesn't happen. That, that's like, you know, if you breed a dachshund and a Great Dane together, it doesn't change the dachshund, it doesn't change the Great Dane. It might give you some really weird puppies, but uh, it, it cross-pollination does not affect the current generation. But if you try to save the seed and replant it, yeah, you may get some mixed-up things. Yeah. Uh, how do you stop that? Just cross-pollinate yourself? 
Well, the commercial growers just spread things way, way out. We had a real good lecture last year from the folks uh, with a Texas company called the Brim Seed Company, and he was saying even on wind-pollinated things like tomatoes, uh, if they want to be sure they're getting a pure strain, self-pollinated, they spread those plants 30, 40 feet apart. So that's, you know, you have to realize your commercial seed grower, he may be growing an acre of seed, and he's just spreading those things so far apart that uh, that there's very little chance that you would ever get any cross-pollination. The other thing you could do, like you say, you could, you could pollinate them by hand, but what you're going to have to do is put a bag around the female flower uh, to be sure no bees come in there and bring in any pollen other than what you put in there. And it gets a little complex. Uh, I, my personal opinion is you're better off just to buy fresh seed because seed's pretty darn cheap. Right. right. Okay. And one other question there. I had some of my garden. I put some uh, compost in. It was made from mesquite. Uh-huh. And, I, and right now, my, I checked the soil and my compost and potassium is good, but my, my nitrogen is slow. Is that mesquite uh, uh, rock kind of rock sucking the nitrogen out, like you said it would do in that hay on a raised-up bed? As long as it is well broken down, and mesquite takes much longer to rot to really compost and decompose, uh, mesquite's going to use up nitrogen for a longer period of time than, you know, a softer wood uh, would. So might have a little bit of an influence there, but... um, uh, again, I I use those. I keep those mulches strictly on the surface until they're really well broken down, and it just takes a lot longer for the mesquite to break down than it does uh, some of the other things. So uh, I, you just have to use it uh, carefully. One other thing I want to back up for just a second, Don, and talk about uh, uh, saving your own seed. A lot of these fancy hybrids now, they do not come true for, from seed. They are not genetically stable at this point so the seed grower has to go back and whatever cross he used to make that new variety he has to keep repeating that cross to get the seed because it takes many generations for that uh for the genetic stability i guess it'd be the layman's way of putting it so uh some crops some of what we call your open pollinated crops your old-fashioned say crookneck squash or patty pan squash uh, you're just fine to save your own seed but if you're planting the newest and latest hybrid that seed is not going to come true a hundred percent you're going to get some pretty mixed up things so uh saving seed from some crops is extremely worthwhile on others which is mainly the newer varieties you can't count on it coming true so i wouldn't make a a real big effort to try to keep it pure strain because uh it's not going to come true it's just uh the uh uh how to put it the genes are still in too much of a heterozygous state they're too mixed up uh for them to come and come back the same year after year after year at this point does that make sense yes sir how would I get that nitrogen up? Uh, yeah, I put mustard growing it. Oh, no plants is there growing and, and take care of that or not? You can you can use almost any of the good organic fertilizers. Uh, if you want to use something like blood meal, it has a little bit higher level of nitrogen. If you want to okay. go to the feed store and get just some alfalfa pellets, just get some rabbit feed. Uh, that's got a lot of nitrogen in it, and that's that in and of itself is going to help bump your nitrogen level up. Okay, I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the call, Don. You have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. Bye.
So let's punch number three there and say good morning, Diane. Good morning, Bob. Can you hear me okay? I hear you beautifully. Okay. So the weirdest thing happened yesterday. I have this pretty big blue bonnet patch. Uh-huh. Probably about a couple hundred square feet, maybe a little less. And yesterday, most of them, the leaves are curled. And But the perimeter, those old plants look just fine. So I gave them a, a I washed, sprinkled them for about an hour, and I've got the sprinkler going again this morning. Okay. How do the plants look? The ones that were curled, have you seen a, any change in them yet? Well, it's kind of dark, so I thought you were going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. A little light, and one the one that I was looking at, a leaf was looked like it had uncurled a bit, but the others were still curled, maybe not quite as much. Well, then I... If if that's the case, then I would have to say that you've just demonstrated that the issue there was water, and you know it's uh, things are dry. Um, it's been what a month now since we had a decent rainfall, even though I've recorded precipitation. I think five or six days this month. It's two one hundreds here, nine one hundreds there. So, and you're over where you've got soil that drains a little bit faster. So. I, it's hard to say why the perimeter was showing, you know, the, the symptoms of being too dry, but I know I set out, I think I set out in one afternoon, I put out eight tomato plants that looked exactly the same when I put them out. At the end of the afternoon, two of them were droopy and showing that they needed water more than the other six. I watered every, I watered all of them and then, you know, everything went back to being perfectly normal. So, I'd have to say that uh, it it sounds like it probably was a water issue, and you probably have solved it. But when the sun comes up and it gets to be daylight, uh, you know where to find me. Let me know if you see anything further. You know, you know what all the common culprits would be, which you know are herbicide drift, which doesn't really make sense there. Um, synthetic fertilizers, which I know you don't use. So, um, you know, being once the, the middle section being a little drier would certainly account for it. So let's, let's see how things look when the sun comes up. Okay. Can I, do I have time for another quick question? Go right ahead. So I am blessed with cedar elm, Uh which is also a curse because I end up with millions of baby cedar elms every year. (laughs) I know the feeling. And I have some areas where I can just, you know, where it grows in the cracks of stuff and I can just weed eat it. But it grows in landscaping. And I mean, I'm, it is carpeted. Mm-hmm. And I usually pull them out pretty quick. And this year I did. And I thought, ah, eh, they can't all survive. Well, they did. They all survived. <laughs> so now, you know, they're a little taller. And I'm like, shoot, I better get on top of this. So if I covered them with oak leaves, would that take care of my problem or do I have to get in there and just pull each one of them up? Um, burying them with oak leaves would probably get rid of 80% of them, but you're always going to have a few of them coming through. Um, covering them up with uh, two, three layers of newspaper. If you could do it where it wouldn't uh, blow away. 
Uh, but yeah, basically smothering them is is one option. The fact that they are they're what now maybe three or four inches tall. They're really tiny little trees. No, no, they're not quite that tall, and they're in the mulch beds. So okay. I can't put newspaper, okay. you know, because then. Do do you have a push pull hoe? I don't have a push pull hoe. Because, see, I thought about what if I just got the hard rake and I just raked them, but then I got all the mulches yep. all messed up, and I guess I just have to hand pull them all again. Well, hand pull them or with little, you know, hand weeder, little scythe kind of thing. And I know a certain nursery that would provide you, and uh, we, we felt bad that you didn't leave with something in your hand the other day. We'll have to make it a push-pull hoe next time. And <laughs> that would be the... Uh, that would be the easiest thing, I think, that you could basically do it without bending over and pulling. Okay, well, I'll, 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 I may come by if I have time this morning. I have to pick my car up at the mechanic. I may come by and look at those push pull hoses and see what kind of effort that involves. If it's the same thing, I may as well get some squats in. Well, um, be sure and talk to me or Roberta if you do so. <laughs> okay, Bob, thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. Thank you, Diane. Goodbye. Oh, all right. Let's get right back to gardening. And uh, Ann is up next. Good morning, Ann. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Um, Just before I get to my questions, I think that you all should should throw some sort of a party over at Shades of Green. Because the people (laughs) who call are just absolutely lovely and fascinating and interested and interesting. And uh, I think that'd be great fun. (laughs) Well, if you'll put (laughs) it on, we'll do it. That, yes, roll or something. Yeah, you know, and and golly, the nursery is beautiful. There's, it's just such a pretty time of year. But uh, uh, people say they think we're having a party from just from the number of people coming in. But yeah, it's it's just. I tell you what, when the day's over, it's about all I can do to drag myself home and uh, sit down with something cool to try to refresh and get started again. But, yeah, maybe it would be fun to have a big party. Maybe we'll do that one of these days. I think Bluebell will provide the ice cream, so we've got that that part of it covered. But if we just get a little time and a little energy. I love it. Uh, my first question is real quick. Um, in Austin, where would I find corn gluten meal? If you want to find it, you should be able to find it at almost any feed store or certainly I imagine the natural okay. gardener carries it. I imagine uh you get two or three two or three pretty good nurseries up there. What are you gonna use it for? Well, I called you last week and um time was short. Um our daughter lives in um Alpine and uh-huh. she's got sticker burrs. Oh, okay. But okay. she's yeah. into Austin frequently. Okay. Yeah, then uh, I probably, she's going to be on the west edge of town, probably coming in from Alpine. Check out Natural Gardener. Okay, West End. Okay. Yeah. All right, I will. Thank you. Um, And then her mother's issues are, (laughs) is it possible to transplant river ferns? Absolutely. And this is a perfect time of year to do it. A little tutorial. Um, it takes a shovel and a pair of scissors or pruning shears. Uh, River fern... Unlike, you know, holly fern, which grows from kind of a single upright place, river fern grows from an underground rhizome. And if you have an existing patch of river fern, 
basically just take that long bladed shovel and dig yourself a little section out of it that's you know maybe six inches by six inches i would take some scissors i would clip the fronds off especially this time of year um just to reduce the stress of transplanting and boy they should be up and growing within a couple of weeks time uh you know doing it doing it now and uh, mm-hmm. it basically you just dig a part of the clump which is not difficult because if you were to wash all the soil away you'd find a bunch of little underground rhizomes about the size of a pencil and every one of those things is capable of you know making a whole new area of growth coming up and where you just take a clump and again five six inches in diameter would be a real good size you just plant those clumps around wherever you like and you will have all the river fern you can manage okay um do they grow do they need a lot of sunshine i'm trying to get it from one part of the garden to the other and going to something that's a little less sunny they um you know it sounds like it's a bright area so it should do just fine in fact i think that's where river fern river fern will tolerate blazing hot sun as long as it gets moisture it'll tolerate an extremely shady area but it'll be kind of thick thin and wimpy but anything in there what i would call the bright shade which means bright enough to cast a shadow uh, up to dappled half-day sun, that's just going to be the ideal place for river fern. It should be very easy. Okay. All righty. Well, that's that's what I needed. Thank you so very much. You always. know, it's always a pleasure, and I'll get back to you on the party. Oh, <laughs> Thank you, Ann. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. Uh, David beat Robert by a whole four seconds, so that makes David first. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How about yourself today? Oh, I'm waiting for daylight talking. Yeah, that's a there. yeah. Well, yeah. how can I help today? Uh, listen, uh, is it uh, safe to say that uh, wicking prunes stop right now? Is it safe to say what now? Prune. So oh, prune. Of, some of the plants. Most, you know, your spring flowering plants. Don't prune them until they are finished flowering. If you have Indian hawthorns, yeah. if you have flowering quince, if you have spirea, if you have ladybanks rose, those things that bloom in early spring, let them flower before you prune. But your right. green shrubs and your trees and things like that, no, yeah. it's a great time to prune. My speranthus and some other, some other brush. Yeah, go ahead and trim them. Yeah. Go ahead and do all the trimming you need to there. Already, um, I, w- I wanted to transplant uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mexican petunia, but uh-huh. it's a short one. What do you call that one? The- they call that Katie's, Katie's Ruelia or Katie's Mexican Ruelia, petunia. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Ruelia is its botanical name, and uh, right. yeah, it's it's real easy to transplant. It comes up places well, you don't want it to. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I had a lot of it coming up, and I, uh, I transplanted some last summer, but didn't do nothing. I don't know uh, uh, what I did or what it is. Well, hot summers. Yeah, hot Mm -hmm. summers uh, a difficult time to transplant. Transplanting this time of year when it's cooler, your results should be much better because sometimes it's just the heat. It just takes all the plant can manage just to stay alive. But right now, while things are in active growth, you should be very successful transplanting Mexican petunia. Okay, well I'll try now and see what hope I can get it. I bet you'll do right, just uh, fine with nice it. Talking to you. It's good to talk to you, David. Right, you Take do care. the Bye-bye. same. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Robert. Good morning, Robert. Well, good morning. Morning, sir. Hey, uh, 
I have a. The good news is my Myers lemon tree has wow so many blooms on it. <laughs> okay. Um, that and that's the question. Will the tree sort of self limit them, themselves on, on um, how much fruit it might set? Oh, maybe just slightly. But a Myers lemon is always going to set in you know in good conditions. It's going to make a lot of lemons. And if you want if you want the lemons to be as large as possible, then you probably ought to go through and hand pick off a few more of them. But um, the Myers lemon, otherwise, you will get a whole lot of lemons, and they will be tasty and juicy, and all the wonderful things Myers lemons are. They just won't be quite as large. So uh, it's up to you. If you do nothing, you're going to get a, a large crop of slightly smaller lemons. If you go thin and out a bit. You'll get a uh, little bit smaller crop of larger lemons. So uh, the choice is yours. Okay. Um, the other thing is, like on my my, I have two rosemary plants that aren't very far apart. Mm-hmm. One has um, a lot of uh, blooms on it, and so is attracting lots of bees. And the other one doesn't. Are they both receiving the same amount of sun? Oh yeah, they're only maybe like. Uh, six feet apart you know it may just be two different varieties there are so many kinds of rosemary out there uh, you know if i sit down with uh, a list from two different growers i could probably especially on the trailing rosemary the prostrate rosemary i probably have my choice of a dozen slightly different varieties of trailing rosemary and they're all going to have slightly different bloom colors and slightly different bloom seasons so if the plants are healthy i think you've just got uh i think you've got two rosemaries that are just slightly different varieties i wouldn't be concerned about it oh yeah they're they're very healthy i gotta keep sort of pruning them back into the walkway <laughs> oh yeah and uh they sure do make their delicious things you can do with it in the kitchen i think you've just got two different kinds of rosemary robert they look very very similar but whether they're standard compact huntington's carpet they they're just so many different strains of rosemary out there you probably have two very similar varieties that are just different and bloom at slightly different times oh, okay the salvia gregii um, I have a, a couple plants, and one seems to get very leggy with a lot of, has some growth at the tips, but in between, there's a lot of, like, looks like dead stuff. Right, right. Um, so what, what can you do to get, sort of get it to be bushy and green everywhere? Well, again, you're probably looking at different varieties. Uh, Salvia gregii, the red form, is extremely leggy and grows just as you describe it. You have to go in and prune it almost every year to try to make it more upright, and it's just a very, demands a lot of attention, and it's just not the same pretty plant. On the other hand, the pink, in fact, there are about 12 different colors of it out there, and some of them, like that real hot pink, in fact, pretty much all the pinks, they're very compact plants that just don't get leggy. They're very upright. They're very neat in the way they grow, and other colors just sprawl out, and uh, they have flowers on them, but they're just not pretty plants. They're just sprawling right. all over the place, and you will help you know, by by pruning on them a bit. You can make them slightly more compact and upright, 
But if you want to not have to do that, you're, you may just have to switch to a slightly different color because, again, there are so many different varieties of salvia gregii, and some of them sprawl and some of them stand up straight. Oh, okay. That I definitely did not know. But stay away from the red. The red is the worst I've ever seen. I mean, the hummingbirds love it, but it is the worst I've ever seen about just sprawling out and demanding so much more attention. By the same token, that really hot, bright, bright pink one, that is the most upright, the most compact, the most trouble-free form of salvia gregii that I know of. And then, of course, you got lavender. you got one that's orange. You've got one that's, uh, they're, they're just practically every color of the rainbow other than blue. Um, they're, and, and some of them, you know, they, some of them go by different names. Some of them just go by the colors. But uh, it's just difference in variety as to how they have what their growth habit is. Oh, okay. Um, now, this is an observation. The oak trees, and obviously now they're, they're losing all the leaves. And, like, mine seems to be losing a whole lot, whereas some of the other neighbors don't seem to be losing as many. I mean, the, it's partly just little in effect. Um, you can't even really call them different varieties. Now, it may be that one tree has got more water than the other, but even even within oaks, um, I'll give you an example. Along the front of my barn, now this is not oaks, this is elms, but I have six cedar elms planted uh, that were came from the same grower that looked exactly the same when I planted them. Four of them are full of, la- of leaves. The other two are barely, the buds are swelling. And they do this every year. Um, the same two are always slower to come out. The other four are always green and full of leaves. Same thing will be in the fall. One or two of those trees will drop all their leaves before the others have even started to drop the leaves. So you just have individual trees. It is not a sign of health in any way, form, or fashion. It's just, uh, uh, it's just the individual trees. Some of them are going to drop all their leaves at once. Some of them are going to spread that leaf drop out over a period of several weeks. Some of them are going to look terrible. Some of them are going to look like they've hardly lost a leaf, and a month from now you won't be able to tell them apart. Yeah. Except for my my driveway and lawn, they're just covered with leaves on big big. Uh, welcome to South Texas. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's it for today, Mr. Bob. Robert, I appreciate the call. You have a great weekend and uh, stay safe and uh, get out and spend more time in your garden and avoid all those large crowds or whatever they're telling us to. We gardeners don't have nearly as much to worry about there. That's right. Okay, I appreciate it. Up. Thank you, sir. Ah, don't dial right this second, though, because David's joined the party, so it's going to be Jack and Ray and Robert and David, and Jack is up first. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How do you keep fire ants out of your garden? You know, what I do is if I see individual mounds, I will kill them out either with, uh, I usually start with a bait called come and get it. It's a fertilone bait that's a non-toxic uh, to people and animals. And it's one of those things you just scatter around. The uh, ants take it down in the colony, feed it to the queen, and the whole mound dies out. Now, on a preventive basis, I just spread dry molasses around. The fire ants do not like dry molasses. Dry molasses is very good for the soil. So to prevent them, I'm just a pretty liberal user of dry molasses. But if I have any of them show up, if they're persistent, I will either go after them with a come and get it or just go drench that 
the hill of them, either with a mixture of just orange oil and water, or there's a safe product on the market called Mound Drench. Problem with Mound Drench or orange oil and water, they can get them all every time. So uh, that's why I always start with the come and get it, because that normally will wipe them out completely. But just as a general preventative, spreading some dry molasses around, they just don't like it and they stay away. What about cedar chips? Doesn't seem to have any effect at all on them. Um, you know, I've got a ranch covered with cedar, and I've got plenty of fire at mounds, even right up under the cedar trees. So uh, I don't, I you know, that it is repellent. Cedar is repellent to a number of different things, including some reptiles. Cedar chips, uh, you know, probably keep snakes away from the garden pretty well, but doesn't has not worked for me on the fire ants, at least. I need to borrow your chipper. <laughs> it's over at my business partner's uh, ranch right now. And as a matter of fact, uh, we've got in the not-too-distant future a, a whole bunch of uh, cedar chipping going on. You know, in the meantime, um, I, 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 I can't say for absolute certain, but I talked to our county officials where I live up in Kendall County, and for a while they have been so overstocked on cedar mulch that uh, they were giving it away to anybody, even if you don't live in Kendall County. Now, you might want to call the city just to verify that, but uh, um, cedar mulch is out there. It's available It's available very low cost from some different places, but uh, I know at Kendall County we were giving it away just because we had such a surplus of it. When do you put corn gluten meal for, uh, on your oak, under your oak trees? I don't. Um, corn gluten meal... In my opinion, in most areas, um, it's gotten to be where it's just so overpriced. And people, you know, talk about using it to stop weeds as a pre-emergent. In some areas, that may work well. But here in South Texas, uh, where we've got things like sticker burrs that, you know, sprout over such a long period of time, it takes multiple applications. And I've always gotten just a much better job just using compost. But now, if you're if you're wanting to prevent oak wilt, then we go with straight cornmeal rather than corn yeah. gluten meal. And uh, with uh, with working at oak wilt prevention uh, about every six months. And I have to tell you that through some recent research, we have found that you probably you you get just as good results by so soaking maybe a couple of cups of cornmeal in five gallons of water, soak it overnight, and then just pour that water out around the base of your trees, maybe within 10 feet of the trunk. Uh, that seems to use a lot less cornmeal, and it still imparts this uh, what we call systemic acquired resistance. It still does the same thing as far as preventing oak wilt. And once again, we, we do it about every six months. If you want to just use dry cornmeal, you can certainly do so. And if you use that in combination uh, with compost or clean manure of any sort, uh, it most definitely works as well. But uh, finding out that you can make your liquid what we would call corn water tea and have it work just as well, that uses a lot less cornmeal, and it seems to be a lot less attractive to the blasted wild hogs and things that sometimes want to come in and start rooting around if you use other forms of corn. We do. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Jack. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Okay, next up is going to be Ray, and then it'll be Robert and David. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, I've got a 
neighbor that's got a lavender bush. Okay. It's bed. It's about four feet tall, maybe six feet wide. He doesn't know what kind of lavender it is. Are there a number of varieties? Oh, there are probably about 15 or 20 varieties out there, probably a lot more than that. But, um, yes, there are many, many different kinds of lavenders. Now, not very many of them get that big, so that narrows it down a little bit as to which variety it would be. And uh, also, not all lavenders are cold-hardy, so uh, it's probably not Spanish lavender or some of the ones that are a little more sensitive to cold, but um, there are still lots of varieties. He could probably take just a little clipping off of it uh, by a good nursery, and they could give him uh, an idea of which lavender variety he has. Uh, I know we have, uh, at Shades of Green, I would tell him to ask for Donna, because Donna knows more about lavender than any person I've ever known, but... Uh, um, I'm sure that a lot of different nurseries could do that. He might be able to call somewhere like Nature's Herb Farm where they grow many different varieties of lavender. And if he could talk to Mary Dunford out there, she might be able to give him a good idea of what variety it was. But, yes, there are many, many different lavenders out there. Good, good. About three years ago, I bought a Pride of Houston holly tree from you. And Pride of Houston still- Yopon. Yopon. There you yeah. Go. And it's still going. It's it's still alive. It's It's my my favorite, but it stopped growing. It was about three feet tall when I bought it, and it's still alive. Like I said, it's healthy, but it hadn't grown much in the last three years. Have you been fertilizing? Yeah. Um, I've been tossing a cup of, uh, cup, cup and a half of, um, I don't know what that is, ladybug. Okay. Um, I've been I d- watering it. Yeah. The same, the same thing has happened to a a golden shower, thallus or thallium? Uh, thryalis, probably. That's yeah. it. Get yourself some liquid has-to-grow plant fertilizer. It's going to be a lot faster acting than the dry products are. Ladybug's a good fertilizer, but I just don't think it's getting to the plant as well and probably not enough of it. Um, go to a good nursery, get some, it's called has-to-grow plant. Liquid fertilizer, you put about an ounce of it to a gallon of water, water both of those plants thoroughly with it, and I think you'll see that they do this about once a month, and I think you'll see a big resumption of growth on both your Thrialis and your uh, Pride of Houston. Will uh, Howard Garrett's product be any, uh, any help? Howard Garrett's, uh, what he calls Garrett juice, is a good general tonic. You might think of it as the vitamins, but it's not the main meal. Uh, something okay. like your has to grow plant will be the main meal, and garret juice will help just about any plant in the landscape. But in and of itself, it's not really a fertilizer, so uh, it's not the only thing you need. I will take it up then. Thanks a lot. For you your report back to me, Ray. I want to know how it does for you. Will do. Thanks. Thank you, Bye. sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Got time here to get in Robert before <laughs> the next break. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good how morning, sir. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm just fine. I trust you can hear me okay? I hear you pretty well. Yes, sir. All right. I'm in the car and I never quite know. So anyway, uh, what I'm calling about is we have about a 250 square feet uh, area that has uh, a crepe myrtle, not exactly in the center, maybe one third of the way down the long side. Okay. And we want, we've had, uh, it's a rental property that uh, we've never had a tenant in the years that we've owned it that did a sing, lifted a single blade of grass. 
So we want to xeriscape it. And I'm calling for instructions on layering. Oh, okay. so we'll have probably we'll probably have river rock or crushed granite on top. Uh huh. I know you don't. I know you don't like uh, a weed block stuff. Right. Well, I certainly explain. Uh, yeah, and I remember your old home up in Diamond Ridge, your neighbor down the way that brought in plastic grass and then had a horrible weed problem from the seed that yeah. blew in on top of it. <laughs> and right. that uh, that would be the same one of the same problems with the weed block. You know, I find if you if you can uh, scrounge up some like cardboard or something like that. Uh, you know, I wish we were still close by every time we have a shipment of plants come in. And we should recycle all the cardboard, but you can, in effect, recycle it in your own landscape. And putting something like that down underneath or multiple layers of uh, newspaper, you know, 10 by 25, 250 square feet is not an enormous area. But uh, the equivalent of two or three layers of cardboard or, you know, 20, 30 sheets of newspaper is going to be about as an effective a weed barrier as you would ever need and given six months time it'll be totally decomposed so uh, I would put either one of those things down underneath your lava or your crushed granite or whatever you choose to use and um, I think it'll do a good job for you I can get uh, a good supply of cardboard so putting down two three four layers deep would not be a problem at all but you said it decomposes in about six months now what happens <laughs> what happens to the weeds weeds after that well, uh, you know, it, 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 that is enough time for it to pretty much suppress anything that was underneath. Um, okay. As far as new weeds that blow in, there is no solution to that unless you want to build, uh, Susie, a nice 250-square-foot greenhouse over the area and arrange for a little hole in the roof for the great myrtle to grow up through. But, uh, um, uh, you know, if... If bare ground stayed bare, it would erode terribly. Mother Nature came up with this little uh, idea of throwing in weed seeds to grow up and give us immediate cover to help hold the soil in place. So uh, um, I can help you get rid of what's there, but it's going to be, you know, tough to stop things in the future. Now, there are some products out there um, and a company, I don't know who you'd go to in Austin, but there are some sealers that they put on um, on granite, on things like that, to help hold it in place, which also have some re- weed repellency to them, and yet you still get uh, fairly good water penetration. So you could try that if you like, but I tell you, five minutes yeah. and a pump-up spray or vinegar and orange oil a couple of times a year are going to be pretty good weed control. So that's not going to hurt the crepe myrtle? No, not at all. Okay, all right. And and do you have any brand names for those uh, sealers you're talking about? Um, I haven't used enough of them to know. Uh, I've got a gallon of it sitting in my okay. greenhouse waiting to go on uh, on a walkway that I've just built, but I haven't put it out yet. So ask me in about three weeks, and hopefully by that time I will have had a chance to use it, and I can give you a little bit better. But I tell you what, somebody that you can really trust if uh, you were to call Stone and Soil Depot out on I-10. Sure, I know them. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you know them quite well. Well, call, but specifically ask for Courtney. She's one smart lady, and she's been there for lots of years. But ask for Courtney, and uh, I yeah. would trust what she tells you is what will probably be the best brand. 
Okay. And then final question, um, the ground level, the dirt level, uh, is approximately the same grade as the surrounding concrete. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe in the center, it's a little bit higher. So um, we either have to have a little retaining wall of some sort around the outside of it or um, uh, remove a lot of dirt, which I don't need to tell you. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably more than a challenge for me these days. But um, uh, what would you suggest in the way of a retaining wall, one of those little metal stake? No, those things, things those things rust out like mad. I, you know, I'm great on natural stone, but uh, there are also some uh, some of the preformed concrete stone building systems that make a great little retaining wall and yet still look reasonably nice. Uh, if we weren't talking about putting the cardboard underneath it, I would tell you that the same sealer that we were just talking about will greatly retard erosion you you if, if that's the big concern but uh i wouldn't suggest using that until that cardboard's rotted away so you because some of that's gonna you know your your decayed granite or your lava either one are gonna sink and move around a little bit as the cardboard deteriorates but uh there are sealers that would help hold it in place but if you actually were going to use uh something to retain it my first choice would be, you know, stacked uh, native stone, but uh, there also is, I say, some of the uh, man-made, so to speak. They make some specific interlocking paver kind of things that you can make a yeah, real nice I've little retaining those. wall out of. I've seen those. This, uh, the building that surrounds it, or it's in an L, mm-hmm. um, is um, uh, kind of a white brick. Uh-huh. So we're thinking crushed granite. Um, any any reason we shouldn't think of crushed granite, or do you I'm, have any other I'm very fond of crushed granite. I think it works extremely well. Bob, thank you very much. Give the dogs a pat. And you uh, give your wife a hug and your dog's a pet for me, and I'll hope we get a chance to get together sometime soon. Robert, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I, I hope so. Wonderful to talk to you, Bob. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, let's get back to the phones lines with some happier subjects. We're going to talk to David and Ann and Bill and Chicken Joe. And David's first. Good morning, David. Morning. Can you hear me, Bob? I hear you fine. Thank you. How about you, sir? How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I've got uh, a line of questions for us, and maybe we can fire this uh, off. Let's what get started. About your fire ants. About fire ants. What about diatomaceous earth on them? As long as it is dry, DE is an effective fire ant killer. Um, The problem, two problems with it is some, you can certainly kill a lot of ants up on the surface, but it's, uh, it's hard to get the DE all the way down to the queen, so the mound will frequently come back. And you have to realize that DE is totally ineffective once it's wet. It's only effective in a dry state. But on the other hand, you're never going to burn anything with it. It's one of the most safe products you could ever use. But uh, it, it, you know, it's something for strictly in dry weather and very dry conditions. Okay. Uh, Medina soil activator, what's the shelf life on it? Would you know? Mm, 20, 30 years probably. Okay, great. Uh, plum, uh, fruit tree, plum tree, fertilization, peach, and citrus. Uh-huh. Are they in the ground or in pots? Uh, in ground. I'm going to use the same thing I use on the garden and other places. Uh, any general purpose organic fertilizer, 
Medina's Growing Green, Nature's Creations uh, Premium Lawn Food, Mushroom's Texas Tea, uh, Espoma makes two or three good general purpose organic fertilizers. Trees just aren't that picky. Now, if you've got something that's really acid loving or, you know, a very specialized plant, maybe you need to go with something different. But uh, um, it's just kind of like you and me. We don't, we just give us a good balanced diet and we'll be perfectly happy. So, yeah, I'm not going to be looking for four different fertilizers and I'm not going to be looking for something necessarily says peaches and plums on the label. I'm just going to use something like Medina's Growing Green or any other good organic product. Uh, the secret is, of course, using it. Uh, had somebody told me a while back, jokingly, said, you know, I got some of that Growing Green uh, a while back, and it hadn't done a thing. Of course, it's probably because it's still in a bag in the garage. So, yeah, it's got to get out on the yeah. trees about four times a year. But uh, uh, don't feel like you have to look for something special for them. Okay. And one more thing, uh, it's not ball moss, but this other gray-looking green. It's called a lichen, uh, yes, sir. Yeah. What about coside? Coside is pretty toxic in a lot of ways, and that little lichen, unless for some reason you just don't like the look of it, um, it is it is does absolutely nothing to cause a problem. And, uh, and some people even think that it uh, does something to eliminate some of the little bark lice and things like that. So, man, i got about a thousand other things I'm going to do before I start worrying about lichen. It just seems like this plant, it's, it's not a crepe myrtle. It's a bush that has fiery red-looking blooms, and it looks like it's, it's covered so much. It's like putting a heavy coat wintertime. It just looks unsightly one i don't think it blooms as much well you know if you want to get rid of it i think you could use a little very dilute orange oil would probably uh take care of it without any problem um but uh i i, I think i would much more likely be looking to see uh virtually every crepe myrtle i'd say 95 percent of the crepe myrtles out there are buried too deeply in the soil and when we've got a plant that just seems to be languishing, not growing as well as it should, not blooming as well as it should, a very high percentage of the time, I find that it's just a matter that it's got soil piled up against the trunks above the root flare. And usually all you have to do is get that soil away. You can do it by hand. Or if you want to, many tree companies out there now have what they call an air spade. And it's a matter of really 10 minutes work to get all the soil away from the trunk of that. And I think that's going to have a lot more to do with uh, lack of growth, lack of blooming than the lichen is. Well, maybe that's why the fire ants built the big mound up around. And they're contributing to the problem. Yes, sir. Okay. Very good, Bob. I appreciate it. You have a great week. You do the same, David. I appreciate the call, and thank you. All right. Next up is Ann. Good morning, Ann. Hi, I have a couple questions, but first I wanted to say thank you so much for your show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I get to talk to the nicest people in Texas. You are a guide for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, we live down at the bottom of a hill in our um, um, neighborhood. Okay. And I think our backyard gets a a weed seed from everybody higher up than uh, us. That's probably a good good analysis, yes. 
But we just, crabgrass has just taken over our backyard. How can we get rid of that? Mow, mow, mow. Um, it's going to die as soon as the weather gets hot. I don't think I've ever seen such a good year for crabgrass. And, you know, I don't live at the bottom of the hill, and I've got the thickest stand of it I have ever seen. But uh, it's just its not worth going to a tremendous amount of uh, expense and trouble. Just keep it mowed off. It'll be good exercise. And as soon as we get into typical Texas summer, it will totally go away. Try to Try to mow it or... Uh, in my case, some areas that I can't get to with the mower, I just use my line trimmer. Try to get it knocked down before it starts making cedar. It'll be back next year. But uh, your lawnmower is your best controller you've got. Okay, I wanted to ask you, once it dies, <clears throat> pardon me, isn't it, isn't it going to leave like a thick ground cover? Is that going to be hard? We have zoysia? No, your zoysia should grow right out through it. If you want to speed up the decomposition, I mean, crabgrass, it just rots into nothing very quickly. But if you would uh, just take your little hose-in sprayer and make a mixture where you're spraying about, uh, oh, two tablespoons of molasses to a gallon of water, just spray that out over the area. It will actually decompose the crabgrass clippings into what will be like fertilizer for your zoysia grass. So uh, that's all you need to do there. Yay. And I wanted to ask you, up against our, we have a real small backyard, up against the back fence, when it rains a lot, we Mm -hmm. just have like a river that runs along the back fence. Okay. From up the hill, we just, it's just like a river. And is it possible to plant anything in that area, or will it all just wash away when the river comes does does the water stand there or does it just you know come through in kind of a little torrent yeah it goes out to the street it doesn't stand but it it i guess some of it stands because i mean this doesn't happen real often in Mm -hmm. san antonio but if you go out there after the river's been through and we've had (laughs) quite a bit of rain everything's kind of squishy for a while yeah i i think almost any woody shrub would be fine out there and uh i might be looking at something that's going to give me a lot of color is this a fairly sunny area Uh i would think about esperanza i would think about pride of barbados i would think about some of the lantanas i would think about uh there are many different woody salvias um i think there are things uh that could be absolutely beautiful there that would be thick enough to hold the soil in place that would not mind the occasional flood running through there, especially, like I say, some of the bigger things like, uh, well, even some of your uh, compact crepe myrtles uh, and the Esperanza and Pride of Barbados and things like that uh, would be absolutely beautiful, would not mind the water running through, and would actually help hold the soil in place. Um, now, are you talking about the crepe myrtle bushes or the trees? And they're the same plant. It just your pruning shears determine whether it's going to be a bush or a tree. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, thank you so much. We appreciate all your hard work, and sh- and we appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Well, it's a great pleasure, and I thank you for the call this morning, Ann. I'll look forward to visiting again. All right, let's get back to the phone lines, and uh, let's see. Chicken Joe is up next, and then it'll be Thomas. Uh, good morning, Joe. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you? Good. I, I, I'm embarrassed to ask you a question you've told me a hundred times before, and I never can remember. Well, let's make I'm it 101. 
<laughs> How much orange oil do you put in the vinegar that for kill the weeds? Two ounces, or two jiggers okay. if you prefer, but two ounces. Okay. Now, um, I'm, I never have asked you this. Um, what is the function of the orange oil? Is that just mechanical to oh. wet the weeds, or does it have a separate function? Well, that's an excellent question. Orange oil is a very strong solvent. And it, mm-hmm. so to speak, you might say that it just softens up the plants to where the acetates and the vinegar can kill them very effectively. But uh, serves the same function when we use it fighting fire ants and things like that. It softens up the exoskeleton on hard-shelled insects and all. But um, and that's what makes it such a great cleaner. Is just uh, it's just a really good solvent. Um, I'm going to be uh, putting putting a little mulch on the garden later today. I'm thinking about mounting it up just a little bit around the onions and the leeks. Uh, what do you think about that? If it's very loose and open, I don't want something that's going to hold too much moisture up right. against the plants themselves. But uh, if your mulch is nice and, you know, it's going to let plenty of air through it, um, it probably will, you know, hold them a little bit more upright. The uh, problem is that, you know, the mulch is one of the principal things they do is reduce evaporation. And if they're loose and open enough that they're not going to cause, cause a problem, um, they may not. And, of course, they do have, you know, they'll help uh, control weeds and other things. But uh, um, right. I, I, I would go, I wouldn't go, you know, my favorite mulches are what we call living mulches that have some compost mixed in with them. Um, and, but that's not what I'd use in, in this case. I would use just uh, straight raw, uh, shredded organic material or something like that. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm going to be using. I, I've been using the quality organic products, uh, yeah. what they call their fresh grind mulch. Right. I've kind of really grown fond of it. It's yeah. Quite loose. Oh, Trevor does a okay. great job with stuff. Well, He's got would, lots of, yeah. lots of experience. The, re- the only reason I was thinking about mounting it just a little bit is it seems like every year, you know, uh, the onions kind of seem to be a little too close to the surface. And and I've heard that uh, it helps to mound up the leeks to get the nice white base. I might agree with that on potatoes. I've not ever seen that much effect on onions. In fact, I've seen onions that were, you know, half exposed that... Uh, um, I guess, you know, maybe I'm not leaving my onions in the ground quite as long as most people because I, yeah. I usually harvest them when that top starts to fall over. And that's that's what I thought you were probably trying to do is just keep that top a little more upright because I know these last couple of big windstorms, a lot of my onions has just kind of broken up the top a little bit. But uh, um, I don't know. Do a little section of your garden, uh, uh, you know, with the mulch and leave a section without. And that way we can talk in June and see which one you, you think is produced the best. Okay. Well, I, I'll try not to get carried away with the, with the mounding. That I think will be a very good idea. Okay. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Joe. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. Mm, Goodbye. All right. Let's see here. Let's go ahead and talk with Thomas. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Got, got two things I want to ask you about. Uh, you know how the city has these green uh, garbage cans where you put your, uh, I'll put my uh, kitchen scraps and all in there. I mean, okay. And, uh, of course, it's going to, there's a lot of little, you know, a million little gnats that get in there. Mm-hmm. Flies. Yeah. Especially when it starts getting warm. 
What can I do? In, uh, can I spray like ammonia in there or vinegar or something to, to keep these uh, gnats down? Or? I'd, I'd probably just use a little orange oil. I think orange that's going okay. to work better than ammonia or vinegar, either one. But just very dilute. You know, a teaspoon in a gallon of water is probably going to be enough to discourage the gnats and fruit flies. What about spinosan? Um, I think it's overkill. But I don't think it would cause any problems. Spinosad, of course, is derived from a natural soil bacteria. Um, I've never really tried, so I can't tell you how well it's going to work, but I think it should be fine. I don't think there'd be any problem at all there. Okay. Another thing, uh, my wife uh, likes these English cucumbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean... That's the one that's wrapped up real nice and cellophane. Oh, yes. I'm going to have the big ridges. I'm very familiar with them. What uh, what variety could I grow that would be like that? I mean, probably. That they, don't, they don't have any seeds or anything, you know. So. Yeah, I have fewer. Probably the one that I have grown successfully here, although they always seem to be a little bit slower, but there's one out there called Chelsea Pride, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, Chelsea Pride is one that I know you'll, and I want to say that seeds from Botanical Interest. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it's either Renee's Garden or Botanical Interest. Uh, but Chelsea's Pride is uh, one that I can tell you that I've grown successfully here, so that would be where I'd start. Do you all carry the seed? Or? Uh, yes, we normally... Uh, Again, you know, the nursery is so full that it is so beautiful. And what I have to tell people is the inventory changes by the minute. So, yes, we almost always have Chelsea Pride in stock. But uh, I know the day I did my uh, my vegetable garden seminar, a lot of things disappeared very, very quickly. So uh, um, if you're going to make a special trip, always call and ask Wendy or Donna or whoever to set a package of it aside for you. Okay, Bob. Okay, I sure thank you for your time. Well, I appreciate the call and wish you a very, very pleasant weekend, Thomas. Good to talk to you. Thank you, you, sir. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. All right. Well, I had one caller waiting and they dropped off. So I tell you what, if you want to dial quickly, I think we've got time for about one more call before uh, top of the hour. When, of course, we talk with Howard Garrett, you know the number, 210-599-5555. So see how quickly you can dial and uh, see if you get in there first. Remind you once again, yes, for the time being, unless there are orders or indications that we shouldn't do our seminars, we're going to keep right on doing our Saturday morning seminars over at Shades of Green. Uh, it's kind of a wide open uh, venue there. Probably not going to be crowded in. Um, <laughs> we're beyond our really big, big seminar sessions. Uh, so uh, anyway, this morning we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about having the most colorful yard you have ever seen. And, uh, of course, our seminars are absolutely free of charge. Uh, start about 945. We do them over at Shades of Green, 334 West Sunset Road. And uh, that's my topic today, color. I'm going to talk about colorful trees, colorful vines, colorful perennials, colorful annuals. And just what you can do, how you can go about layering, how you can go about having a a really, really beautiful color-filled yard. So, anyway, hope you will come over and join us. And uh, it's, uh, anyway, it'll be fun. And I think we'll just finish up calls for this hour with Celeste. Good morning, Celeste. Uh, Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have a friend who wants a start of Confederate jasmine. Uh Can I just take a cutting of mine? 
Well, you'll have to root that cutting. And yeah. unfortunately, this is the time of year that your Confederate jasmine is putting on or about to put on a real large amount of uh, very soft, succulent growth. So if you were to take a cutting, you know, from the new growth coming out now, it will not root well. Confederate jasmine grows easily from cuttings, but you're probably going to need to wait till, oh, May or even June before you take that cutting. So if your friend's in a big hurry, they'd probably be better off to, you know, go out and buy a gallon can of it, uh, which will actually have blooms on it. But if uh, if you're looking for a way to start some great Christmas presents, <laughs> you know, like I say, when we once once the new spring growth is hardened off just a little bit, um, you can, you know, take a bunch of cuttings, take an empty tray, empty pot, whatever, fill it with uh, white volcanic material they call perlite. And probably 80, 90% of them will root and grow for you. And, uh, it's, as you know, it's one of those plants that grows very quickly. So the good news is it's easy to propagate. The bad news is right this minute is not the best time to do it. Oh, okay. And so you would not ever just do it in water. Well, see, the two problems with water. First of all, um, the soft, you know, very soft tissue is not going to root well in water any more than it is in anything else. But any plant, when you root it in water, that plant forms a whole different type of root in, in water than it does in soil. And when you take that cutting out of the water and pot it up, all those roots that you grew in the water die, and the plant has to start over growing a root system that is adapted to soil. The perlite, which is a volcanic material, and by the way, you can use it over and over. You can have, I, I have pots of perlite that, oh gosh, I'm rooting a lot of different things in. But uh, the plant forms the same sort of root system that it would in soil, and when you take it out of the perlite and pot it up, it doesn't even slow down. It just uh, explodes into growth. So that's what makes water a bad rooting medium is that it just doesn't grow. A plant doesn't grow the same kind of roots in water that it does in soil. It's why uh, something like perlite, perlite or even just coarse sand, those are much better media to root in. Okay. Well, I may just be going out and buying a small pot of it. <laughs> okay. And let me tell you one more thing. Um, there are a couple of different forms of star jasmine on the market. The one of uh -huh. them has that bright white flower that you and I love. The other has more of a beigey, kind of a yellowish flower on it. So uh, be sure you're getting the true. It goes either by the name of Confederate jasmine or star jasmine. And, uh, you know, for, you know, $10, $11, you should get a plant that's big enough to have lots of flowers this spring. Yes. Okay, well, great advice. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Celeste. Thanks for the call this morning. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Right now, it is my great pleasure to push that button right there and say good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning, everybody. Hope everybody's safe and not feeling bad. Oh man i i had a I, I had a very temporary cold last week, and I mean it hit me hard on about Sunday, and it was gone by Tuesday. But you know that's the kind we need. But I have to ask you is is Dallas as affected with this? Uh, I probably shouldn't use the word insanity, but my gosh, it just it seems like we are doing things without thinking them through on a large-scale basis. I guess that's about the best way I can I can put it down here. How, how about Dallas? 
Well, both Dallas and the uh, state of Texas have declared, you know, Abbott and uh, Eric Johnson, our, our mayor, have decla- declared it a, 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 an emergency. You know, it, they've done all they can do. And it's probably it's probably a good thing uh, what the president did overall. It looks mm-hmm. like it was a good thing because everything is, uh, everybody's comfort level and confidence is going the right way. It It's... I don't know what to say other than it's going to go away. I'm glad we're being as careful as we are, and I think we're probably on the right track now. Well, I, I think that's that's probably the uh, probably the right attitude to have. And um, you know, people are asking me, has it affected you know what you do on a day to day basis? And I, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person about washing my hands all the time anyway, and trying not to be rubbing my eyes or my face any more than I could. And certainly I'm not going to get right in the face of somebody that's, that's sitting there coughing, but, uh, I don't know. It just, it, it seems like for something that doesn't appear to be much worse than a bad cold or like case of the flu, it seems like we sure are, we sure are getting very agitated over it. And, and I'm sure that a lot of this is the right thing, but I, I just wonder, and you know, we don't need to be grandstanding on this but like the school system just saying yesterday here in san antonio they said oh we're going to close down for another week i think about people that have kids that you know that would normally be in school that are working folks and all of a sudden you have to find a way to manage child care and things like that there, there are just so many ramifications that it's just uh, i don't know it's 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 a big mess of sorts but hopefully it will be like the flu season and when we get really hot which in texas we know it's not going to be very far away that uh all the problems will subside a great deal well it's affecting everybody uh out there you know the sports industry just taking a huge hit so oh yeah my, my loss of a few thousand dollars for speaking engagements which has happened mm-hmm. kind of piddling but you know it's yeah it's affecting uh, everybody i am speaking today it wasn't canceled i'm speaking at strong's nursery out in carrollton uh, uh-huh. today but and i spoke in houston uh went, i flew there tuesday and spoke uh, wednesday to the garden club of of houston and uh they had sent out a, a letter to all their members that uh if you felt bad don't come but if you come no shaking hands no bumping well about 50 percent of the people went ahead and were shaking hands because you forget <laughs> to do it you know you're so used to yeah to sticking your hand out when you see somebody but it's um it was it was interesting in the airports very uh, two things struck me in the airport one i only saw both in hobby and and in dfw i saw a total of probably five people with masks on so mm. I was glad to see that because that's ridiculous to do unless you've got the disease. Exactly. Those are the people that should be. Harm than yeah. Good. yeah, and then the other thing uh, was, well, three three things. The other one was kind of a silly little thing, but the, the other one was that the airplanes were flying, but they were only about half full, uh-huh. which, which was good news, bad news. I got plenty of leg room, got to stretch out <laughs> more so than I normally do on a Southwest uh, flight. The other thing, a whole bunch of people that came on the plane brought in their own little, you know, Clorox wipes to mm-hmm. wipe everything down, and they had to come on and make an announcement that they were going to go around and collect all the wipes before we t- took off because you couldn't leave them in the seats. It was kind of a funny deal. Uh, you know, but, one thing that Roberta and I do when we fly, she, uh, you know, will always take a little cotton pad and bring some of the essential oils and just, you know, put a few drops on there, and we both, you know, inhale deeply 
of that. And the theory is that it kind of coats your respiratory tract and uh, and reduces your chance of contracting something. And all I can say is that we've done this for years. And, of course, you know, going to the gift markets and the trips that we take, we've been more than once on a just plane full of coughing and sneezing people, especially for the January gift shows. And knock on wood, I don't think we've ever picked up anything on an airplane. So uh, either we've been very lucky or... What oils do do you use? Um, Lavender is one, and um, I'm trying to remember. uh, uh, I think Thieves is a little bit strong, but I think Lavender and Rosemary are the two that we use. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good idea. Yeah. I'll have to remember uh, that. But, yeah, the... uh, the event was good uh, in Houston. They had a big crowd that came out, and uh, I think we converted to some people. It's interesting, even you know, every time I speak, especially to a new group, that was the first time I had spoken to them. I've uh-huh. spoken to the River Oaks Garden Club right. several times, but the Houston Club, uh, it, that was the first time. And it's always interesting to me, even the people that think they're doing an organic program and aren't, really. Mm-hmm. And, and still think that they have to step off every now and then and do uh, do some chemicals. And I think it comes from the source where they buy most of their products down there, which you know is something I don't recommend. Right. And I get tried to give them some other um, recommendations about where to get products and 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 tr- convince them. And I think I did a lot of them that you you can be 100% organic and have. You know, total control, however, as good a control or better than you have with the uh, the uh, chemicals. You know, I still love, and I think of it constantly, that picture that you use in so many of your slideshows, the black and white. You know, it's just... Uh, it's just something that you're to get the best results you just you do it all organically, and there's no reason not to that there isn't really any hybrid program out there where it's partly synthetic and partly organic there's just no reason not to go 100 percent organic well one of the things that's going on as you know is the product availability is just getting better and, and better right and i think we're going to see it continue that way because the big uh, chemical companies are getting into it too i got an email just a couple of days ago saying asking me if scythe was okay they it was made by the Dow Chemical Company. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back and said, yeah, that's the one that's probably been around the longest. It's yep. pretty good. It's a little pricey. There's better ones. You know, the Weed Crush that I recommend I think is better. And, then, of course, the uh, the vinegar products work super, too. Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a question for you. Have you ever heard the term uh, user, let's see, uh, usury ha, usury ha. It's Y-U-Z-U-R-I-H-A, Yuzuri-ha, and it's either a hyphenated word before the ha or it's one word. Have you ever heard that term before? I don't think I've ever heard it. I hadn't either until I met the uh, wild and crazy David Creech <laughs> in Boston some years ago. All right. And he, he introduced me to it on, uh, uh, related to a plant that I got from him, which I'm a big fan of, and it's one of those trees in the category you and I talk about all the time and not really being available, uh-huh. uh, but hopefully that'll change. And it, the loquat-leafed oak, Yuzuraha means that the new leaves, the, that the old leaves stay on the plant until the new leaves start to grow. Mm. Uh-huh. And uh, 
there's a Japanese uh, fellow that wrote about it, and and he's got information. David's got information. You can do a, a search, and it'll it'll come up. But uh, it, it it happens to a degree on Mexican white oaks mm-hmm. and others. You could you could argue that any evergreen is kind of in that category. But live oak tends to kick the leaves completely off right. before the new ones start to grow. But this term. Uh, specifically refers to trees like uh, loquat leaf oak, where the new leaves uh-huh. are visible before the old ones kick off. And the theory is this Japanese philosopher talks about the fact that the old leaves are providing nutrition. The new leaves are actually giving thanks to the old leaves, which have provided nutrition all through the winter. The word also means compassionate. Huh. So this is kind of a, an interesting term. I kind of like it. He told me about it years ago, and it sounded too complicated, but I started writing a column about yeah. my annual column on leaf management. Uh-huh. So I'm putting it in the column. Usuri Ha. I, I'm going to have to make that part of my vocabulary. It's, it, it's funny because, you know, we always tell people when they've got a sick tree in the summer months, that if the leaves turn yellow and drop off, it's probably temporary stress that they turn yellow and brown and but stay hanging on the tree, that it's a bad sign. But uh, that would this would apply to, uh, I've got a, a maple in my front yard that's an experimental variety that actually came from Will Fleming. And this thing, all winter, it's just a solid mass of dead leaves. And this past week, it's just almost within a 24-hour period, Every one of those old leaves was off, and the new leaves were coming out. So, it applies to uh, trees that are stay evergreen, like the live oaks, as well as uh, I guess some of the some of the others that the leaves just stay on the trees brown. But now I know what to call it. A <laughs> new yeah, word it for the day relates the most specifically to a plant called Daphne. Uh huh. And Daphne is an interesting plant. I, I'm gonna try it here, but it probably needs more acid soil than, than we. Yeah. have here. It's referred to as false rhododendron. It looks right. like a rhododendron. Yeah, you see it all over skin. California. Huh. Yeah, but it uh, doesn't have flowers, so mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, one that I'll probably try here and, and see, but it's the one where apparently the name came from uh, originally. Huh. Now, the, what you uh, talked about on the maple, and it'll be part of my column, is not uh that's called uh mark essence when the leaves turn turn brown and stay on the tree that's a completely okay. different deal well you're teaching now, me today saying the leaves staying green okay uh, on the plant before the new leaves uh, start to emerge okay well i've learned two new words today then thank you yeah mark essence is where You'll see it on uh, maples uh, at my office. The uh, Caddo maple does it uh, very strongly every year. And the Big Tooth maple kind of sometimes does it and sometimes doesn't. And the the plantsmen around the world really don't have any kind of a total agreement on why that happens. Some of them think it has to do with the plant trying to defend itself from browsing, that keeping Hmm. brown leaves... Mm -hmm. Uh, through the winter helps to keep the deer and browsers away a little bit, but Interesting. I don't think anybody knows for sure because some, you know, you can have you can have a certain species of plant, but the one of them drops its leaves all the way and the other one holds its leaves all winter. You know, red oaks will do that. Oh yeah, some, some of them. Oaks. Yeah. Well, Marquesence and Usuri Ha, two new words for my vocabulary today. I I 
that that's those are great things to learn i always enjoy learning um i had a had a question from a caller earlier that i said i would ask you and now is hemp can hemp legally be grown in texas now uh or are we still waiting on some sort of government approval um well that's an interesting question it's supposedly legal but the rules have not been written and have come out the last time at the hemp show that we had in dallas they were mm-hmm. talking about there were some guys from the uh, state there and they were saying that they probably will be out in march which means that uh, the whole season is lost sure you know, one more year so no it's not fully totally one you could do it and get away with it but mm-hmm. when they finally come out with the the rules you know you may get blindsided so it's a little bit dicey right now okay so yeah, because I had asked, uh, the sheriff happens to be a friend up in Kendall County where I live, and he said, uh, he said we, you would have no problem unless somebody just demanded that, uh, you know, that we do a test on the leaves and said, if you exceed the THC level, then you're in big trouble. You can be criminally charged just as you always have been able to. But he said, as from our perspective, as long as your product is not exceeding that level, you know, we're not going to be out looking for you. But uh, I guess for anybody that's think of thinking of doing it on a commercial basis for, you know, CBD production and things like that, it's it's probably going to be a better idea to wait until the rules do come out. Yeah, it really is. And the one thing I learned in visiting with a lot of different people at that, uh, well, I've gone to a couple of events now and spoken, but uh, uh, in talking to people that have actually grown it, you know, the old pot growers you know, are, are <laughs> right. in this industry because they really understand it as, be- as well as anybody. But it seems like the people that really know what they're talking about are saying that that uh, THC level will happen We'll, you'll get to uh, what they call hot above mm-hmm. the the .03 level uh, on all plants. Really? No matter where they came from, where they started from, what seed or transplants, it, it has to do with age, with the maturity, more than the genetics of the, of the uh, crop. Because okay. they're all the same plant, sure. basically, you know. So it's a uh, it's a little dicey. I think the secret there is just to harvest earlier, just to understand that that's the uh, case, and uh, you've got to be doing the uh, testing all along. Sure. And the the older growth obviously would be where the uh, uh, THC levels would probably kick up first. Well, I know there was some concern, and and people were talking to you early on that with the organic program there was some concern because things grow so much better and produce so much better in general under an organic program that it might uh, artificially or, or naturally kick up the THC levels higher just by the method of culture. But uh, I, I, I know that you... and that's a real uh, concern because I don't think anybody in the industry to this point understands organics enough to sure. have done it, you know, the way we would uh, recommend it being done and having this incredibly healthy uh, soil. So it's a... It's a new, and there's going to be some people make a lot of money, but there's already across the country people that have lost a bundle on it. You know, going into multi, multi million dollar operations mm-hmm. and not knowing what they're doing. And uh, so it, they're, it's kind of muddled right now, to say the least. Well, I know you and Doug have done some consulting on it, so you're probably the best authority out there to know what, what does and doesn't work. But boy, there's, uh, 
Um, there's a lot of interest in it. I guess that would be the best way to put it. Everybody everybody thinks that it's uh, just such an easy thing to do and all. It's like anything else. No, if you're going to do it on a big scale, you're going to process it, you're going to have a distribution system. Uh, it's it's like growing anything else. It's <laughs> I, I won't go back to Bloomberg's comment about it. It's not just stuff a seed in the ground and put dirt on it and then water it and you've got your crop. It's It's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. But anyway, that's where it that's where it stands uh, as of today. Have uh, another question I want to ask, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, have you ever used a uh, refractometer? A friend up in Bernie announced to me. He said we're going to have a contest. We're going to see who who gets the highest bricks in their tomatoes. And he and he whips out. He said, I don't know why I had this. Probably for a science fair project or something. But uh, I did not realize how relatively simple it is to use one of those things that uh basically you you know there's no really any preparation just putting some of the sap on the little glass plate assuming that it's really clean and then holding it up to a light source and uh, um the bricks leading reading is relatively seems easy to take i've just never done it have, have you done it and is it that easy yeah it's just putting sap on there and you close a little plate down yeah. and it's just the light going through it gives you a reading uh-huh. and obviously the higher the bricks the uh, the better it is that's what we're accomplishing when we have the healthy soil the healthy right. soil makes the uh, trace minerals bioavailable to the plant and the trace mineral availability is directly related to the complex carbohydrates mm-hmm. and sugars in the uh, plant and the it also relates to pest control too, because when yeah. you kick those sugars up in there, the uh, the insects go away. They go somewhere else. Insects go after the unhealthy plants, and it was not the ones full of sugar. I guess, and and I don't know whether it's new information or whether there's just an increased awareness of you know exactly how it works, and supposedly that once the bricks level gets up to a certain point. The plants are resonating at a different frequency, and the the mechanism by which the insects, you know, flying some distance away, pick up on what's a healthy plant versus an unhealthy plant. But I just find it fascinating that now there's some science behind how it actually works. And uh, uh, this idea, I think, of the bricks level they aim for is 12 or something like that, and they say the insects just tend to start ignoring things, and then you add on the nutrient density change and just so many reasons that the organic system works so well well the the um refractometer has been used in the wine industry for decades and decades forever yeah and uh, in, in citrus and there's a lot of industries that, that use it on quite a regular basis i don't they don't understand uh, they're you know looking at it from a different angle they're just trying to get the sugar up as high as they can they're not really looking uh, about the health of the soil and uh-huh. that it's directly related to that in, in some cases but it's um it's uh, it's a good tool it's in my book uh, the mm-hmm. organic management for the professional talking right. about uh, using it in there i that's probably i knew i'd read it in one of your books but i didn't remember which one very good very good um and somebody else asked me and i i just have not had time to bring up dirtdoctor.com was asking me if you had uh, somewhere on the website 
um, your instructions on making compost tea? My answer was, I'm pretty sure it's there, but I don't know exactly where to tell you to go looking for it. Yeah, we've got a couple of different entries in there, and, and if you do a search uh-huh. on DirtDoctor.com, that little search uh, button up at the top works really well. Good. The first things that come up are ads because it goes through Google, you know, <laughs> but then the ones that don't have the little ad sign on it are stuff from our website. And you'll find things on compost and compost tea, and in compost tea, I not only have <clears throat> some general uh, instructions and recommendations from me, but also have Bruce Dooley's uh, yep recommendations on how he does it which is pretty cool uh way he does it also well and and i was telling the story it's so funny several years ago when roberta and i went up and took elaine ingham's course that uh and and she actually invited people to bring their tea makers and then while she was teaching us how to use the microscopes to analyze it um, we were analyzing the teas from all these different tea makers, and number one was Malcolm's $10,000 worm gold machine, and number two, as far as the quality, was Bruce's $25 tea bucket. So uh, it's <laughs> you just don't have to have a real a real complex setup in order to uh, make some pretty good compost tea. Yeah, and you get into a good discussion about who's got the best. I think they all can work, and... The commercial versions of Garrett Juice, uh, that's a good example, too. They don't even have any compost tea at all. Mm-hmm. It's just simply a liquid humate there, and it stimulates biological activity rather than having that much in the uh, in the product. Although it has surprised us, we've had some people test the commercial versions. Uh-huh. Garrett Juice, I don't, I don't even understand how it happens exactly, but the the biological activity in the product itself, pretty pretty good, and how it stays alive uh, in there in that situation, I don't know. But I think the main thing is just what it does to stimulate the biological activity once it's applied to the soil with the other things you use. Well, and of course, uh, we're told that approximately half of the microbes that would exist in a soil sample have a resting state and i'm sure that's what's present in garret juice and some other things and from everything i've heard and read it goes from a resting state to an active state very very quickly and so that's that's probably what's happening in something like garret juice but uh especially when it has the apple cider vinegar in there yeah. i was talking to some of the women at the garden club again that they uh, were mentioning certain liquid products that they were using and i said I said the biggest flaw I see in people trying to be organic and, and then saying, well, I've got to step over the, off the, over the line every now and then is not putting the apple cider vinegar yep. in the uh, liquid mixes. I think that does more good with its synergistic effect than any of the other ingredients. Mm-hmm. The others you can get away with using and have okay success, but if you want to have the best success, uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, you know, seaweed, uh, molasses, and, uh, uh, you know, compost, some of the compost teas or liquid uh, oh, sure. humate is just amazing how well that simple formula works. Oh, and some of the fish blends, it's it's it really is interesting that, uh, that the apple cider vinegar does all of this, and I think it's partly some of the things that are in the apple cider vinegar and partly, you know, through the action of the acid that's in there but it's it is amazing i i planted some seed this week uh 
you know, of squash and beans, and I'll plant cucumbers later. But I tell you what, it's become an absolute must for me. I, I think some people soak their seeds a little too long, but, you know, a brief yeah. 5 to 15-minute soaking garret juice for me has always just made all the difference in how quickly things germinate and what a much higher percentage of germination we get from it. Yeah, and we did some uh, research years ago out in Vernon, Texas, uh, trying to grow and did grow uh uh, plants, whatever we could grow on land that had been dead for 75 years and, uh-huh. and with different organic techniques. And we would put the seed out on a uh, newspaper and just spray the seed. Uh-huh. The juice there. So it, there are different ways to do it, but I think the one fault is what you mentioned is soaking the seed too long. I think you get negative returns. And that would be even just soaking in water or anything else. But, uh, right. yeah, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't take a real long time to get that little seed ready to jump up out of the ground and uh uh that's what i was saying if i had to self-quarantine i mean two weeks to spend in my garden that that would be kind of fun <laughs> that's that's more time than i would normally get in three or four months to uh yeah get there's through. benefits that can come out of it uh, well, i'm gonna have to run but everybody keep your hands off your face i know that's hard to do but that's a recommendation i got from stanley marcus years and years ago he talked about how hard that it was to do i think he wrote a column about it and it is but try it as much as you can everybody out there and we'll see you next week well howard we appreciate it having so much fun i hadn't even looked at the clock to see <laughs> see how far it got thank you as always for taking a little time with us we'll do it again next saturday thank you bob see thank, you. thank you sir Bye-bye. and goodbye Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, and if you haven't already discovered it, uh, dirtdoctor.com is one of the few websites out there that really, really does have information that is applicable to Texas. I know you can find a jillion things about plants on the Internet, but the great majority of them are not written for our part of the country. And uh, dirtdoctor.com, I think you're going to find, is the best resource you can possibly use for Internet searching just almost anything. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. We'll finish up the show with Martha and James and Nick and Chris. And Martha made it in first. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. Good morning. I have a place where my oxide daisy is coming up and blooming beautifully. Okay. And a bare place next to it, about an 18-inch cube. And I was thinking of something linear, but I can't think of anything. Okay, and so you're looking for something that's going to be low-growing and will take a good deal of sun? Oh, yes, and very little water. But um, maybe something that would have a different shape than the oxide daisy has. Okay, uh, I would think about pink skull cap, Scutellaria, okay. as mm-hmm. one. Um, now, it would be the same shape, but Blackfoot daisy, of course, is one of my favorites that fits those criteria you know, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are actually some pretty new varieties of sedum out there that okay. uh, are cold hardy, and uh, some of them with colorful leaves. And, of course, most all your sedums produce a little yellow flower uh, periodically. But uh, mm-hmm. those are the things that come to my mind very quickly as different possibilities. Now, another one that I love, but it might be a little bit more invasive than you want but uh, it's called serratostigma is his botanical name people call it dwarf plumbago but it is not a plumbago at all it's a spreading ground cover with cobalt blue flowers that uh oh in my landscape i water it three or four times a year whether it needs it or not 
And uh, okay. I would have never thought about putting that there. <laughs> so I was thinking it needed a lot more water. No, no, it uh, you know, and it it looks a little droopy occasionally, but golly, it's been there for years and. I have to be honest, I think last year I only watered it once, and uh, it freezes back in the winter, but, man, it's coming out just gangbusters. I mowed it off here a couple of weeks ago, and now I've got just beautiful new green spring growth coming out everywhere. Great. Okay, my the pomegranate we pruned, and then I think we must have had a frost because all the leaves are whipped. It'll come back whipped. out. Okay. Yeah. And then African violet, I've always... It rooted it in water. Uh-huh. How do you root it in dirt? I would root it in perlite. Okay. And some just violet growers in, have like I would, like it was water. Yeah, yeah. Just put that petiole down the same way. Some African violet growers actually mix perlite and vermiculite together, but I've never found that necessary. Things that root from leaves like peperomias, African violets, and all, I find mm-hmm. that just pure perlite works extremely well. Okay. And then um, I just heard a commercial about Tacoma Bermudas. Right. Had a nut in. Is that really as good as they said it was? Uh, you'll have to ask me in a couple of years when I have a chance to use some of it. <laughs> it okay, they, they make it, a little of it. There. Yeah, you they make it know. sound wonderful, but I just don't tend to take other people's words, especially. Well, you haven't tried it yet. Yeah, now Dell's is from this part of the world, but the place where that was developed was not South Texas, so it's going to have to be proven to me. Great. Have a great day. Enjoy bumping elbows and have a good day. You can count on that, Martha. Thanks for the call this morning, and uh, you're always pleasant uh, thoughts. Thank you. You Certainly. Goodbye. Uh, James is next. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. Hey, I'm well, sir. How about yourself? Well, I'm down here at the restaurant delivering a load of cilantro waiting on some uh, huevos ranchero right now. Now, there you go. Sounds like a barter system alive and well to me. Oh man, I you know Mexican food. Um, that's my deal. Um, you were talking about uh, uh, apple cider vinegar. Uh, right. I've got a fifty-five gallon drum that I dip water out out mm-hmm. out, to, out by my nursery, and uh, I've been using a pH uh, down from Bright Ideas. Uh huh. I think it's just acidic acid. Uh-huh. Can I use uh, about a pint or a quart of the apple cider vinegar in 55 gallons to get that pH down and also um, jazz up the water with that uh, apple cider vinegar? Jazz up the water, definitely. Whether it's going to drop the pH is going to depend a lot on your water source and where it started out. My water out of my well in the hill country is so alkaline that, yeah. you know, a cup or two of apple cider vinegar is not going to really knock the pH down. But it's my observation that whereas a lot of the, you know, the chemical guys for years, they want to look at specific pH numbers. I, it's my experience that if you're looking at things organically and if you're looking at humic acids and things like that, uh, that that number's not really so important. So, you know, it's it's kind of like hardiness zones and things like that. I, I Or numbers on a fertilizer bag. It's all depending on, you know, how they work in the soil. So I don't, uh, I don't consider actual pH. You know, pH is a logarithmic scale, which means that 8 is, you know, 10 times as alkaline as 7 and 9 is 10 times as alkaline as 8. 
I just don't look at that pH scale nearly as much as I once did. Okay, we'll dump a quart in there and then uh, stand back and see what blows up. Hey, you let me know how, how large the blow-up is. I think the blow-up's going to be on the microbial life in the water rather than anything more uh, more physical, though. That's what I'm hoping for. i got another question. Okay. Uh, in the wintertime, you know how you put your uh, uh, half-inch PVC hoops over two right. uh, nursery tables and then yeah. put your, your frost cloth on there? You know all about that. Uh-huh. Um, the wind's blowing so hard this spring that uh, that I'm doing the same thing except I'm putting a real light thirty uh, uh, shade cloth on there to, to mm-hmm. protect the uh, seedling trays. Yeah, they're jiggling a little bit, but they're not flapping. Uh-huh. Am, am I hurting myself with that shade cloth? The plants mm. look great. No, if if it's really lightweight like that, I don't think you are at all. You know, 30% or less, I can't imagine it's going to cause any issues. Uh, I've used chicken wire for the same thing because it doesn't really screen things at all. But shade cloth is easier to handle and easier to fold up or roll up when you're not using it. But, uh, yeah, as long as you're down there in that 30% or less shade, I don't think you're causing any problems at all. It's not going to be on there yeah. for very long. Yeah, we're getting winds that are just, uh, you know, blow the hair off a gorilla out here man. Uh, I mean, welcome to really texas windy. <laughs> yes sir and, uh, those little plants they they just can't uh can't tolerate that no i i think the shade cloth's a great a, a great addition to put over that and for more reasons than just uh securing the frost cover down yep those yellow squash and those cow pots and that um English cucumber, sweet success in those cow pots, those four-inch cow pots. These are the best plants I've ever grown in 50 years. That's saying a lot, James. I just, That's saying a lot, man. Let's hear it for the cow pots. Um, yeah, for, for high-value transplants, Yeah. you know, something you really want to bet the farm on. Yeah, I'm really, really going to get behind those. Well, it's good to know what's going on in your garden, and I'll look forward to talking again. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. At FM 1071. What happened, Don? What, what, what happened here? Yeah, okay, okay. Well, maybe tomorrow you will owe us a good fishing song. How'll that be? That sounds like a good plan. We'll do it tomorrow. That'll work. So, yeah, I'll be sure and join in. I'm, of course, talking to my engineer, Don Cooper Stevens, and we usually get that fantastic fishing show, song to wind up the Saturday show. Since he's going to be with us tomorrow, we'll just uh, we'll just do it in the Sunday show. Right now, we'll finish up phone calls with Nick and Chris. Good morning, Nick. Morning. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Good. I got a quick question for you i got some hackberries in my yard yes sir and basically the 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 branches are getting pretty thick so i'm, I'm going to go up today and i'm going to trim them trim them down okay but someone told me that hackberries have a tendency as the branches get bigger they'll dry out and just kind of bust up if you get a, a good wind um or anything like that so i was just trying to figure out a you know kind of a good recommendation if there's any specifics as far as how i might or might not trim those up or- oh I, I think that's an excellent question uh and i have hackberries all over my ranch that they actually cut down oak trees to plant you know 100 years ago because they were the end tree to plant my observation on hackberries is while they are young and growing vigorously they almost never split or break 
but they reach a point when they get monstrous that when they decide to come apart just over a period of a year's time or so, they will just totally start dropping big, heavy limbs almost everywhere. My suggestion on pruning would just be on any real long limbs or anything, take some weight off the end of them. Kind of thin them out. If you've got, uh, you know, this big old long hanging limb, don't just cut it back to a random point, but follow that limb back down to where you have another branch growing that, you know, it could, the tree could certainly develop. But I think reducing the weight just toward the outer part of those branches will make it a stronger tree and certainly uh, be a little protection for whatever's underneath it. Perfect. Yeah, that's what I was trying to find out. Because if, right now they're about 30, 35 feet tall. They're yeah. pretty old. Yeah. Um, I bought the house. I've lived in the house 15 years, but I figured the trees, yeah, they're probably, you know, a good 30, 40 yeah. years old. So I yeah. just didn't know. Yeah, I I would just work at lightning. Yeah, I just work at lightening up, and there's absolutely no reason to use pruning paint. So just be careful and get after it before all the leaves get on there. That's good to know because that was my second question about the pruning paint. Yeah, because they're they're, you know pretty high, so I don't. Yeah, no, uh, no reason to. In fact, it actually slows down healing on a hackberry, so no paint necessary. All right, perfect. I appreciate it. I appreciate the call, and I thank you for being uh, brief so that I could get Chris on here. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Bob, and everybody else out there. Now, remember, panic, panic, run, panic. No. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually love what Trey Ware said earlier. Let's have a news-free weekend. Don't listen to a single newscast all weekend long, and you'll be happier. So uh, I've been tuning out the news. So you let me know if there was anything important on there. But anyway, we've only got a minute and a half or so. What's going on today? Okay, simple, simple, simple. Uh, I just went brain fart. Oh. Yeah, nut sage. One one part of my garden completely packed. I know you said before that up in the Bastrop area they had nut sage growing like mad, and the plant's still good. Good, but mm-hmm. what is the formula? A, a quarter cup to a gallon of uh, water of molasses, or what? I'd, I'd use up to half a cup per gallon of water. Okay. That's all, and then, yeah, and it'll also benefit all the plants growing in it anyway. Oh, it will, and remember, it's not a spray, it's a drench. You want to actually drench the soil around where you had the nuts edge growing because what it does is just creates so much uh, microbial life that the uh, the nuts edge just rots, rots away. And the last 10-second part of it is, uh, not cabbage, uh, the things that stick up and make small cabbages. Brussels sprouts, yeah. When do they start pushing out? When do they start pushing out? I got great big plants and nothing happening. Oh. Well, it's a matter of time, and usually it's about 110 days into the cycle. Um, it's uh, It should happen in the very near future. Let's hope that it happens before um, before the weather gets extremely hot. But apparently it has to do with the degree of maturation. Next time you plant, look at the number of days to maturity yeah, uh, that you'll see on the package or whatever the Brussels sprouts, and that's the time they're going to start. Oh, I that. did. These are huge. I planted oh, yeah. them back in what October. Yeah. Well, that's that's why we have to plant them very early. Uh, if you have a, an area with a longer winter, Brussels sprouts are a much more dependable crop. Here, you've just got to get enough growth into them before the weather turns hot. So they should be should be coming up very very quickly. And uh, going to have to hold you there because I am flat out of time. The phone lines are open for the Home Improvement Show. I see Mr. Martin Bama 